From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Frank Ogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, a new playbook for financing a climate-constrained world, another guide for low-carbon solutions, a preview of innovation at the upcoming COP24, and the new wild world of e-scooters. We're just too tired. Get it? Scooters too tired? Don't forget it. This week on 350. It's November 30th, 2018. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me here in Green Biz Studio is the one and only Green Biz Editorial Director, Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Great to have you here in Oakland. Great to be here, Joel. So we're here for a week of sort of year-end kind of all-team meetings, our holiday party, which we had last night, and uh, uh, good fun, of course, by all. And uh, just... Uh, you know, starting in that, now that it's after Thanksgiving, uh, that year-end kind of coasting down, although it's hardly a coast. We're planning our State of Green Business Report, uh, Green Biz 19, uh, year-end stories, uh, strategy for 2019, lots going on here. And we're also planning something I know is a pet project of yours, Joel, Greenfin. Tell me what that is. I feel like I'm living in 2019 already, but tell me about the, the Greenfin Summit. Well, it sounds like a marine life kind of thing, but it's not. It's about green finance. Um, this is something that uh, I've been thinking about for a long time, which is really about the conversation between companies and mainstream investors around uh, environmental and social metrics, which has been happening for a long time, but has not progressed very well. That And the real problem, Heather, is that the kinds of data that companies are reporting is are not necessarily what investors, particularly big institutional investors need to make risk-based asset allocation decisions. By the way, that's a phrase I just learned how to say. Um, in other words, they're, they're, they're just not getting, uh, despite this call for more data and more data and more reporting, it's still not necessarily the right stuff. And that's both parties' fault. So as you know, in these summits that we do, these half-day summits we've been doing at all of our events at Verge and Green Biz and probably at Circularity in June, uh, it's a half-day event invitation, only get about 100 people in the room, try and get the sort of the ecosystem of who needs to you know, be addressing this problem and have a, just a really good conversation with, with a focal question. And the focal question uh, this time is, what would it take to align corporate reporting with investor needs in order to accelerate investments in sustainable solutions? So this is not about impact investing. Not necessarily. I mean, uh, and that term is one that I still don't can't get my head wrapped around. It's sort of like socially responsible investing and impact investing. I mean, yes, this stuff has it could be construed as impact investing, but I don't honestly know what even the definition of that is. Is is that BlackRock, you know, putting you know a hundred million or a billion dollars or more than that uh, in a certain direction to specifically look at low carbon technologies? Is that impact investing? Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Again, I'm, I'm a little bit ignorant of that world and what those terms actually mean. But this is around the, you know, the big institutionals, the Black Rocks and the, the, the CalPERS and Nysters and the other pension funds and endowments and, and so on. Is how, does more, how do we 
you know, make sure that the money that they're investing, that they're getting the information they need so they understand uh, climate risk. We're going to talk a little bit about climate disclosure, risk disclosure a little bit later, but that's obviously a big issue. Who needs to be in the room for that summit? So, you know, I can think of all sorts of, you know, we, our classic audience, of course, is the sustainability teams, but this is really about how to elevate that concern to the board level. And we've talked about that for many years, but who needs to be in this summit? So first of all, the objective is to, and we're doing this in partnership with, with S&P uh, Global, Standard & Poor's, the metrics, uh, investor metrics giant. The goal is to get sort of half uh, the investor side and half the corporate side in the room. So on the corporate side, there's the, obviously the corporate sustainability executives and uh, corporate investor relations, treasury, CFO. I don't know that we'll get board members per se, but then there's on the other side, there's the investment service providers, the ratings and metrics organizations, the institutional asset owners and managers. And, um, and, and we're very excited. S&P is a great partner. And um, as we've talked about this to a lot of organizations that are also working with investor groups like Ceres and their investor network or SASB, um, they tell them what our goal is here. They said, oh my God, that's, that's, such, that's so needed for so long. Yeah, so I'm excited about this too. It's it's something that I've I've appreciated watching over the past two years as the financial disclosures come closer to the sustainability disclosures and how they will evolve and become something richer and, and more powerful as a as a general business tool. I love also that the, the thing that for me this this means is it's gonna help help us get more attention from sort of the, the mainstream business world, right? So, you know, I'm thinking to some of the the non-traditional audiences that that green biz is now going to reach with this message so good on you for pulling that one off well thanks we haven't pulled it off yet but i did i don't think i mentioned that this is actually the morning of uh, february 26 which is right up against the the opening of the green biz 19 conference uh it's invitation only you can request an invitation uh you'll see a link on the green biz 19 website and we'll post that as well in the uh, web page for this podcast. So that's coming up and we're excited about that. So that's next year. What's next week? You've got some stuff, you've got some, tra- you're flying back east with me, I believe over the weekend. <laughs> Not exactly the same place as I am going, but we're, you, you've got some trips up, up on your, uh, your calendar. What, where are you going? Well, I've got a couple trips planned in December, but next week I'm gonna be uh, speaking at the Wall Street Journal uh, CEO Council event in, in Washington, D.C. This is uh, um, 100, 120 or so CEOs. I'm actually doing a, a breakfast. It's going to be a smaller subset of CEOs uh, talking about business, climate, and technology. This, sponsored, uh, this breakfast is sponsored by Tech Mahindra, uh, part of the, the giant uh, Indian conglomerate uh, that it's itself, and its chairman actually was one of the co-chairs of the GCAS, the the Global Climate Action Summit in San Francisco in the middle of September. Very progressive company and very excited to be working with them. And um, it's going to be talking about uh, sort of our verge world to a large extent, the, the role of technology in addressing climate change and the business opportunities therein. Yeah, Mahindra is one of the most progressive Indian companies on climate. They're, they were a founding member of the EP100, the Energy Productivity uh, 100 campaign that the climate group um, is spearheading. So exciting, exciting that, I mean, what I love about that, what they're trying to do is they're trying to uh, ensure that the growth in India is responsible growth and that the investments in the infrastructure are 
thinking about low carbon and so forth from the get-go. I, I mean, they have a lot of challenges. They're, they're actually, unfortunately, their coal infrastructure is still pretty dominant. They and in, in, in China are the, the biggest coal consumers. But um, love that. And I also love that you'll be in this room with people that aren't always um, um, listening or haven't always had the opportunity to listen to this message. But I think that the ears are opened. Um, the ears are open now for this message. Well, it was interesting that uh, at this event, which is usually talking about sort of future of things and technologies and such, that they chose climate as one of the three topics that they really wanted to zero in on this year. So that's encouraging. So I come back from D.C. and then at the, the end of, I guess, next, in about a week or so, I'll be headed to COP24 in Katowice, Poland. I'm not sure I'm saying that right, uh, Katowice. It sounds Italian. I think I'm mispronouncing it, and I will definitely learn uh, before I get there and even by next week's podcast. Uh, a little bit later in this week's episode, we're going to have an interview with the organizer of the uh, Sustainable Innovation Forum, which is one of the go-to uh, regular events that takes place uh, next to all of the COP events around the world, as well as uh, the, one of the main sponsors of that event from BMW. But that's all ahead. Let's look back at the Week in Review. So we're going to start off this week with a first of a three-part series by Greg Rogers called Planning a Successful TCFD Project. Begin with the end in mind. So TCFD, acronym alert, is the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures. Uh, sort of a remarkable story that about 18 months ago, at the urging of the G20, finance ministers and central bank governors, they asked something called the uh, Financial Stability Board to create this task force. And the task force came out with recommendations, a framework basically for financial disclosures that enables stakeholders to better understand the concentrations of carbon-related assets in the financial sector and therefore the financial sector's exposure to climate-related risks. And what's remarkable about it is how quickly that very awkward, geeky acronym TCFD has come into the uh, corporate sustainability lexicon and how many companies are now at least looking at, if not actually yet reporting on that. But this is a way of, of basically saying, okay, you're, you know, you're doing all these things, you're reducing your emissions, but what are your risks? Yeah. And the, that TCFD acronym floats around with the GRI acronym and the, SA, the SASB, SASB acronym. Um, and so often I think people are, the, the, the community that's most interested right now is obviously the ones that have spent a lot of time developing reporting frameworks. Um, and this series of stories is a great primer, if you will, on how to think about in integrating TCFD reporting into your, your company, how to Consider it. You know, is this is this something that that your organization is going to use and as an, a, a strategic tool, as something to help guide um, ESG risk disclosure and so forth, or is this just a checkbox? You're going to just kind of put this on the list of reporting requirements. It's it's notable, I think, that there's still very few companies that are actually doing this. I can count on like a, I know JetBlue is one of them. They're they're building these into their quarterly. Um, financial disclosures and sort of the regular reporting that they do to the, the stock market analysts. But really, realistically, I think a lot of people are kind of struggling with how to do this. And this is a great series primer on, on just that, just how do, how do you think about this? How do you, how do you break down the steps in, in, in getting this going? And I love that we're doing sort of the, the service 
journalism, the piece that talks about, you know, how do you do this first? You do this. Here's four things to consider. Here's a bunch of bullet points that'll, that, you know, get your uh, head wrapped around this. <laughs> we don't get to do enough of that. And so we're very excited that Greg Rogers, who is a author, attorney, CPA, entrepreneur, who has a company called Erotothenes, I think we're pronouncing that uh, semi-right. It's a, it's a little bit of a challenge of, from a branding perspective, but a uh, great series. There's two more parts to come. And so we'll look forward to that. But speaking of how to uh, kinds of things and playbooks. Uh, we published a piece about a new playbook for financing a climate-constrained world. It's sort of the other side of the financial climate puzzle uh, that comes out of uh, the organization Series. This is a piece by Kirsten Spaulding, who runs the Series Investor Network, which is uh, some of the world's biggest pension funds and and in investment organizations uh, looking at uh, how to leverage their resources to address climate change, um, whether it's uh, investing in new things or, or uninvesting in other things. Um, and so this is a, a playbook that, that, that Series published. I think it's, it's, it's kind of cool in terms of how do you uh, accelerate uh, and finance to meet the Paris goals. Yeah, and I think one of the things to think about as, as this plays out, no pun intended, is that this is not going to just be startups. There's a, a lot of activity on the cor corporate incubator front, a lot of corporate venture funds, um, oil and gas majors really trying to spend more money in uh, financing some of these low carbon technologies, these clean energy technologies. Certainly just a drop in the bucket right now as far as their, their overall our research and development budgets go, but we do see a lot of money um, moving around here, and this is a, a great, like I said, um, how-to. It's more super service journalism on, on how to think about where that money, where your money might go. And the other piece I want to talk about is uh, moving from carbon to water. Of course, they have very much to do with one another. This is a piece from our friends at Environmental Resource Management, ERM, and Procter & Gamble about um, uh, how they, the journey that P&G has been on to address water stress and risk across its global manufacturing plant for portfolio and sort of the, the, the three-step, as I said, process they went to in terms of, of risk screening and uh, site analysis and questionnaires, and then in-depth site uh, water analysis, which is the current phase they're in, and, and how they've uh, been moving along that path and using existing uh, tools that are out there, like the World Resources Institute's Aqueduct Water Risk Atlas and the World Wildlife Fund's Water Risk Filter filter uh, that are out there for companies to use. It's, it's sort of a nice, again, sort of a case study on how to think about water for a company that has uh, dozens of facilities uh, around the world. It's also a case study on collaboration, if you think about it, because there were so many different players that needed to be involved with, with sharing data and, um, and thinking about this holistically. And I, I, I really appreciated this piece because I think there's a lot of companies, again, that are struggling with, they want to do it all at once. And this is a really thoughtful, phased approach, um, how they looked at their risks, how they then dis decided to prioritize their sites, and then what they're going to look for at those sites. What, what, what does success look like what, if they change a strategy? What does that metric mean? So great. Uh, more service journalism, a week full of service journalism. I love it. Hal Harvey, CEO of Energy Innovation, 
has extensive experience when it comes to federal energy policy, having served on panels appointed by Presidents George H.W. Bush and President Bill Clinton. He was the founder of Climate Works Foundation and Energy Foundation, and in 2017 received the Heinz Award for his long track record in fighting climate change. Hal is sharing his longtime expertise in a new book called Designing Climate Solutions, a policy guide for low carbon energy. Written with two other experts from Energy Innovation, Robbie Orbis and Jeffrey Rissman, Designing Climate Solutions is a handbook for policymakers on both national and subnational levels. It is a book shaped by pragmatic optimism and ideas for concrete solutions. You can find an excerpt on greenbiz.com, and I am pleased to welcome Hal to this week's GreenBiz 350 podcast. Welcome. Thank you. Delighted to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled. I, you know, and I'm, I'm looking here at the word policy. It's a pretty broad word. Um, and, and you and your co-authors identify four sorts of policies in particular that could be instrumental in fighting climate change. Can you describe the role of each and how they reinforce each other? Absolutely. So the first is research and development. We have a lot of the technologies already we need to abate climate change, and we should not hesitate in deploying them at scale. But there are options and opportunities in the out years, um, better batteries, for example. Uh, so we should have a vigorous investment in clean energy R&D. Right now, the country spends only one half of 1% of its energy bill on R&D. It's less, actually, huh. than we spend on potato chips. And that's all R&D. Yeah, oh, that's all, yeah. Clean, all, all clean energy R&D. Ah, clean, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so if you fail to invent the technologies of the future, you either don't have them or you have to buy them or rent them from someone else. So it's uh, incredibly short-sighted to not keep up with R&D. So that's, that's the first bin of policies. Mm-hmm. The next one is performance standards. And these have been the hands-down winner in reducing carbon emissions and increasing energy efficiency and renewable energy. And they come in a variety of flavors. For example, a good building code is a performance standard because it says if you're going to build a building in this state, it better be super efficient. Fuel efficiency standards for cars, renewable portfolio standards, even the efficiency standards for your refrigerator or your television are performance standards. So like Energy Star, yeah. Exactly. Well, Energy Star is actually not a, a, a standard. It's an, it's an aspirational goal. Mm-hmm. So a standard is a floor of, of performance. Fair and, and people people take these for granted. You know, if you if you buy a packet of meat from the supermarket, you expect it not to be poisoned. Right. Um, and when you take a drink from your tap, you expect it to be digestible. When you check into a hotel, you expect it won't burn down. We're used to performance standards. We see we have them on tires. We have them on everything. Uh, so we shouldn't shy away from them. We, it's just basically saying society demands better goods. So that's bin number two. And that's by the way bin where most by far the most clean energy opportunities have come so far. The, the third element is, is pricing carbon, and this can be done through a carbon cap or a carbon tax. And I'm basically indifferent as to which is used because within most reasonable ranges, they have the identical effect. What, what pricing carbon does is uh, essentially advantage clean over dirty, not surprisingly, but it also creates a consonant consumer signal that makes performance standards work better. So if you simultaneously have a high fuel efficiency standard for your car and a gently incrementing gasoline tax, you're happy you bought a fuel efficient car rather than upset about it. Mm -hmm. So these things tie together super nice. 
The last is a suite of what we call enabling policies. And this gets to the question of how hard or easy is it to get something done? So if you want to put up a solar farm, uh, let's say it's a community solar farm in on some brownfield development in your city or some brownfield area in your city, and you don't know when you're going to get the permits, you don't know how long it'll take, you don't know what will be required of you, you're not sure about transmission access, you don't know at what price you can sell your electricity, then you've got a very risky venture. So even though the technology is mundane and cheap, the business case is risky and expensive. Mm -hmm. If on the other hand, the government says, here's some green light zones. If you build a solar panel, a solar farm here, you're set. Here's the price we'll pay for the electricity. And here's the exact specs we need for you to get a permit. If you, if you meet all these specs, you get a permit within 90 days. The point is, it's not a softening of standards. It's a streamlining of, of as standards as tough as you want to make them. When you drive down risk, you drive down price pretty dramatically because investors price risk into the loans and equity they give you. Got it. Got it. Yeah, and, and the enabling standards uh, bucket, I just want to ask this question because I've been reporting a lot on microgrids. And I know that one of the issues that, that people that want to deploy those get into is that in some places and in some industries, they're required to use diesel. They're required to use certain technologies over others. And are you talking really about enabling technologies? Or are you also talking about addressing disabling policies? Well, it, it's, a, it's a great question. And this is where actually there's some synergy between policies. As a rule, I think it's best for policymakers to demand performance rather than specify technology. And energy performance comes in four flavors. Is it affordable? Is it reliable? Is it clean? And is it safe? And if you insist on all four qualities and you don't say you must use solar, you must use wind, you must use diesel, then the market can figure out the best way to meet those standards. So creating, creating your goals and creating your policy around those characteristics, which are after all what human beings actually want, is the way to go. Now that will phase out dirty diesel in no time flat. Right. So, yeah, and I meant an enabling policy versus a disabling policy before and my setup for that one. But... Um, so technology, technology, one, you mentioned it already, one fundamental thesis in this book is that the technologies needed to reduce carbon emissions already exist. And, you, and yes. you, you know, so you just mentioned that we shouldn't, you know, advantage, necessarily advantage one over the other or specify one or the other, but which are there ones that we should prioritize, like to go back to your R&D example, where should we be putting our R&D and why? So, so the beginnings of wisdom in thinking through all this and choosing which policy is suitable is what they call learning curves, which is how fast technologies reduce in price as they expand in volume. Um, and the reason solar now has dropped by more than 80% in price in the last 10 years, wind has dropped by more than 60% in price, was because we built a lot of solar farms. We put up a lot of solar panels and we put, a, <coughs> excuse me, we put in a lot of wind farms. The next major energy source that's coming online is offshore wind. Now, offshore wind uh, has always cost more than onshore wind because it's more difficult to do things in the ocean than on terra firma. On the other hand, the wind blows a lot more over the ocean and it blows a lot more strongly. So if you can put a big windmill out there, you get a beautiful power supply source. So what we need to do is make sure that offshore wind goes down the same learning curve, the same cost reduction as happened with onshore wind. And that's well underway. 
offshore wind has dropped in price by half in the last four years alone. It'd be nice to have it drop in half one more time and then it would be fully competitive. It's already competitive in many situations. Hmm. So, so what policy should do is to say, there's a walloping great source out there. It doesn't have the environmental impacts we worry about. It needn't have visual impacts because you can put it far offshore now, but it costs nine cents a kilowatt hour instead of five cents a kilowatt hour. So let's give it some production tax credits on a steadily declining basis to make this technology really scale up and, and go down the final uh, threshold of price reductions. Well, I live in New Jersey, so I'd love to see that happen. I, I think our economy would appreciate that. <laughs> um, yes, indeed. Yeah. Um, I, I want to ask you about one other specific thing on my mind a lot, the, the carbon reduction technologies. So like things like sequestration, um, you know, capture sequestration and so forth. And, and I yep. know there's lots of different flavors of that. But, um, you know, it's important for us to be taking stuff out of the air as well as not putting as much in. So is there anything in that bucket that you're watching particularly closely? Well, this is a classic case where R&D is important. Uh, right now, it costs upwards of $100 a ton to pull carbon out of either a power plant or the air and sequester it underground. Um, and there are uh, huge opportunities to reduce carbon at far lower prices than that. So the, the trick to land at any reasonable climate future is to get the biggest opportunities the fastest you can. So the first thing policy should do is focus on buildings, transportation, the grid, and manufacturing, and make them much more energy efficient and power them increasingly with renewables. But then looking down the road 20, 30, 40 years, um, it would be very nice to have a machine that subtracted carbon from the atmosphere. Um, and we don't have any right now that are even close to competitive. So this is a great opportunity for serious R&D. And by the way, it can't be Tinker Toys. Uh, there are a number of realms in which modest sums of R&D sort of keep the promise alive but never deliver anything. And it's, it's kind of a torture, a drip torture approach to thinking about the future. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, so again, I'm going to go back to the, the title of the book, Policy. And policy, yes. you know... Primarily focused on policymakers, I believe. I mean, in, in, at least in the, some of the, the materials I've received. But I want to obviously point out that this is a great resource for lots and lots and lots of different kinds of people. So how specifically can it be a resource for business leaders? What, what's your call to action for the business leaders that are listening to this podcast? So business leaders need certainty. If you're going to design cars, build an assembly line for cars, produce cars, and sell cars, it'd be pretty nice to know what kind of fuel efficiency is required for them. If you want to install a huge wind farm or buy a bunch of renewable energy to power your company, it's nice to know the price and the speed at which it can be delivered. If policymakers don't create serious long-term signals with continuous improvement, business leaders are left out in the cold. So today we have this spectacle of car companies not knowing whether they should meet the California standard, which used to be aligned with a federal standard, or a new federal standard, which is a borning but is challenged in the court. By, by messing around with signals, by turning them on and turning them off again, it fundamentally handicaps businesses. So how, so can, businesses need, yeah. how yeah. can they help make sure that doesn't happen? So here's the, here's the quick recipe for designing great policy. First of all, uh, have long time horizons and regulatory certainty. It has a dramatic effect on companies' ability to meet your goals. Second, don't set a specific quantitative target. Don't say 40% renewable energy by 2030. Instead, set a rate of change, 
4% more per year, for example, or 5% better fuel efficiency per year and have that go continuously. When you do that, you tell the companies, uh, the better you do, the better off you're going to be. And you should organize your R&D and your product line and your dispatch against these long-term continuous improvement targets. It, it also means policy then begins to reflect the technological dynamic because technology doesn't go up to a certain point and plateau. It, it, there's always a possibility for improvement. So the, so the first the first one is serious, long-term, believable standards. The second one is continuous improvements. The third and fourth ones are are, are brother and sister, and they are policy should be technology finding rather than technology specifying and should be price finding instead of price specifying. So if you want to have your 40% renewable portfolio standard or your 5% a year of reduced carbon, zero carbon technologies, don't tell them it has to be solar. Don't tell them it has to be onshore wind or offshore wind. Let the market figure that out. Let, let competition do its job. The, the free market's absolutely amazing at technological development and price reduction. We need to capture that capability in our clean energy revolution. Fantastic. Thank you for that insight. I really appreciate your uh, time today. Also looking forward to this new uh, Congress in the new year. So it should be interesting to see if the policies shift again. But to your point, hopefully they shift with a long-term horizon in mind. Thank you, Hal. Thank you. I really appreciate the chance. Hi, this is Katie Fehrenbacher, Senior Writer and Analyst covering Transportation for GreenBiz, and today I'm going to talk to you about the new wild world of e-scooters. If you live in a metropolitan area like Los Angeles, Denver, or Chicago, you might have seen some of these new stand-up electric scooters sitting on your city's corners. For just a couple of dollars, you can use a cell phone app to rent one of these scooters and ride it to the store, your school, or the last mile of your commute to work. But these scooters have also brought controversy, as new technology commonly does, and some cities concerned with safety and sloppy parking have started regulating or even straight-out banning these micro-vehicles. Yet e-scooters have a tremendous capacity to help with cities' environmental and transportation problems. They run on batteries, not gasoline, and are helping take personal cars off the roads. Recently, I got a chance to sit down with the scooter company Lime's new head of sustainability, Andrew Savage. He's also a founding member of the company and a former solar executive. Savage had this to say about how Lime scooters can help cities. I mean, there are three areas where I think we really excel that address the three biggest challenges cities face in transportation. One is carbon. You know, over 350 cities in the U.S. alone have signed on their own carbon or climate goals after we pulled out of Paris Climate Accord. So this, that's 350 cities that um, most of them are cash-strapped, as most cities are. Most um, will have will struggle with meeting their goals, and we can come in with a program that costs them nothing and help take a big. Um, we hope to help take a big um, bite out of the carbon impacts that they have on their city. The second is access. So, how do we provide our service to underserved communities? Help um, reduce transit, you know, um, deserts. Um, help with more affordable service in communities that have never had haven't had the investment either in public transit um, or other services to be able to get you know to and you know from uh, work to, to get home from work um, and then the third is congestion so we know that with uber lyft ride hailing services congestion is going up and up 
and to be able to find to have a mode that is lower impact and and reduces the number of vehicles that are needed on the street we think is we think the three of those are going to be really compelling as as cities see the impacts um, and hear about the impacts in markets that are more developed the morning that i met with savage on the 21st floor of lime's soon-to-be former offices in downtown san francisco the company also launched its first car sharing service in seattle while Lime mostly operates scooters and bikes, the company is interested in providing slightly larger, but also pretty small, vehicles to its network. But these first cars are traditional internal combustion vehicles that run on gasoline. Since the company seems so set on electric vehicles, I was curious why Lime isn't using EVs for its first car sharing service. This is what Savage had to say about that. So we will be doing electric vehicles um, in the future. This, was, this is a um, one-market pilot. Operationally, there are challenges to having an electric fleet, but our, our plan is to have an electric fleet for car sharing and point-to-point car sharing. We think that's, uh, that's the future. We will be electric across bikes, scooters, and, and cars, um, but we also want to be able to test the service and, and, and get it right and understand the operational challenges so that we can go in and, and provide a service that, that works for the community. As I said earlier in the show, COP24 is coming up, and I'll be headed to Poland in about a week to attend. And one of the events I'll be attending is the Sustainable Innovation Forum, an annual conference that takes place at each and every COP event around the world. And here to talk about the forum are Nick Henry, founder and CEO of Climate Action, the organizer of the Sustainable Innovation Forum, and Andreas Klugeschei, head of Steering Governmental Affairs, External Relations, and Sustainability Communication, at BMW. Nick, let's start with you. Tell us, first of all, what's the elevator pitch on the Sustainable Innovation Forum? What is it doing at these events? Thanks, Joel. Um, So, yeah, we have um, our elevator pitch is essentially that we create a forum that is the go-to place if you are a business that are interested in engaging in the uh, essentially the green economy and be a, and want, want to be a front runner in sustainability so it creates the platform to engage with policymakers and and has the ability to deliver tremendous value in terms of understanding where the shifts are and the opportunities are in the global green economy so talk a little bit about how the forum relates to what's going on at the actual cop event which is for governmental officials, uh, Sustainable Innovation Forum is for what the UN calls non-governmental organizations. Talk a little bit about how the content at the forum relates to the, the main event. Well, I mean, a big focus this year is about calls for greater action and stepping up. And there's been a huge amount uh, of recent media coverage over the importance of um, raising the ambition from two degrees down to 1.5 degrees. So in order to do that, we need greater action from the private sector. I think the mo- one of the most uh, a very interesting outcome from the, uh, the climate summit recently uh, in the U.S. was that there was so much significant levels of uh, investment raised. Uh, I think it was 500 new commitments, which resulted in six trillion of in- institutional funds divesting from fossil fuels out of the G- GCAS event in September. So we're looking for some significant commitments from investors to divest out of uh, oil and gas. And we're looking for the role of the private sector to, uh, to step up uh, in terms of not just funding the, the, the climate finance gap, 
but leading the way in innovation in cities and uh, in decarbonizing uh, our current business and an economic environment. Well, let's turn to the private sector. Andreas, uh, why is uh, BMW sponsoring and uh, what's your hope to, you'll get out of this? Well, you know, we've been involved with the Sustainable Innovation Forum since 2014. And since then, uh, it has turned out to be the one uh, um, business-related event at uh, COP. It has been very successful in bringing together not only business, but also, um, as you referred to, government uh, um, uh, executives and uh, those uh, who are taking part in the negotiations and also non-governmental organizations. Um, you know, you find at the Sustainable Innovation Forum every sort of a relevant stakeholder. And uh, for BMW, it's highly important to actually engage with these stakeholders, uh, not only uh, through sponsorship supporting the Sustainable Innovation Forum, but also in bringing content uh, and, and input to the discussions. We'll talk a little bit more about what you as a company hope to get out of this. What are you coming to Poland uh, hoping to accomplish? Well, you know, uh, we've been involved as BMW with the uh, COP uh, um, conferences since 2008, actually. I remember vividly the uh, 2008 summit at Poznan. Uh, it was at the time also in Poland, where we actually showed technology solutions. Uh, you know, one thing and a highly important thing is to set up uh, the targets, but Ultimately, the targets are only relevant if you are implementing them. And here comes the role of the industry. You know, So we coined, uh, uh, even before 2008, in the 2002 Johannesburg World Summit on Sustainable Development, uh, the, the slogan, sustainability, it can be done. And that implies uh, when it can be done, it can be implemented. And uh, that is where industry plays its part. So we want to show that uh, we are part of the solution. But we also, and, and that is even uh, at least equally important, uh, probably even more important, we need to understand what the expectations are and where we can actually cooperate and collaborate. Because given the complexity of the challenge, we need to find partners in order to get relevant when it comes to decarbonizing. So Nick, what's the role that you think business can best play at COP24? Uh, I think it's it's going to be in demonstrating that we can have the, the innovation and the technology and that, that we can not rely on policymakers to, to drive the agenda. We need to step up. We have a, a 70 billion short funding gap on an annual basis currently. Many of the developing nations, developing states are wondering how that they are going to be funded in order to meet the commitments of the Paris Agreement. So the private sector needs to send a clear signal that they're stepping up and they will do more. And Andreas, so if you look at this from the perspective of BMW and come away from COP24 with wild success, what would that look like for you? <laughs> Well, you know, um, besides a, a rather personal view on the COP conference, as I mentioned, we've, uh, we've been, I've been there for the last 10 years, and it's always extremely inspiring to see how many relevant and very smart people are actually working to, to make sure that we can keep global warming in, in check and, and make sure that the uh, climate change is not going to hit us uh, extremely hard. Uh, that's a personal note, though. For, for business and for BMW, I think it is going to be a a big, big success when we have learned more about the uh, challenges, and I'm talking here namely about, for example, cities and uh, and the urban sector where mobility is, is obviously a big part of, of the topic and where we can provide solutions and where we need to leave, uh, learn more 
about uh, you know the requests and the uh, and the visions of cities, but uh, it's also very important to understand how we can, on a local and regional level, act while uh, potentially on national and and uh, international levels uh, there is more need to negotiate. So I'm I'm very optimistic that in particular when you think about the local level uh, that we can contribute already today uh, in order to make life in cities more livable, including fighting climate change. Well, I love the optimism and I love the theme of of the Sustainable Innovation Forum because uh, we need all of that innovation and much more to, to get where we need to go. Nick Henry is founder and CEO of Climate Action, the organizer of the Sustainable Innovation Forum coming up at COP24. And Andreas Klugeschei is Head of Steering Governmental Affairs, External Relations, and Sustainability Communication at BMW. Thanks to you both, and uh, I'll see you in Poland. Thank you, Joe. Looking forward to it. Thank you, Joe. Sustainable agriculture is one of the themes that we expect to be exploring more in 2019. And so we dispatched our assistant editor, Holly Seekan, to uh, attend the annual Sustainable Agricultural Summit. This year hosted by the Field to Market Organization, um, the Innovation Center for U.S. Dairy, and some organizations like the National Pork Board. Um, stewardship index for specialty crops, and so on and so forth. There are quite a few different organizations hosting this year's event. Um, and the theme was Future Casting Agricultural Sustainability. So, Holly, welcome to Green Biz 350. And um, wanted to start first with uh, what was the mood like at the conference? The mood was pretty excited. I would say that most of the people in the room were pretty um, ready to hear from those future casters, the producers on the ground, as well as the sustainability um, heads for retailers. So I think that there were a lot of perspectives represented, um, the consumer, the retailer, and the producer talking about sustainability. Now, the event was actually emceed, if you will, by Bob Langert, right? The uh, former sustainability chief at McDonald's and our very own editor-at-large. And I know you had a chance to speak with him. Um, one of the things that I noted as I was listening to the audio was was um, his observation about how many farmers were at this, the, this gathering, like probably more so than in the past. So again, I'm going to go back to you. What, what were um, some of the, the takeaways you had from your, your discussion with uh, Bob? As we know, Bob has been at the forefront of the sustainability in agriculture movement for years. And so he was really excited. Um, You know, he's one of the big decision makers. But I think that he was excited about people on the ground actually looking for direction from the top or uh, tools and technologies to enable them to create more resilient systems and more sustainable products. He was able to talk with me a bit about how the field has changed, what he noticed that was new, and I think that given his experience, he was he was pretty impressed by some of the upcoming trends and sustainable um, developments. So here we have um, some more of Bob's thoughts on uh, what he's observing, what he's hearing from farmers, and um, what he's expecting them to be investing in during 2019. I've had a, a lot of revelations, and I've been involved with food and ag for a long time, but 
First on my list was the economic crisis that the farmers are going through today. I don't think most people realize the stress that they're under. Uh, a lot of statistics were put forth. Uh, Secretary Tom Vilsack, who served under Obama, talked about how the median income for farmers, there's about 1.3 million farmers in the United States. The median income is below zero. You know, how is that sustainable? Uh, a, a leader in, 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 the, in the farming community talked about what farmers get in terms of the share of a price of something you buy in the store, the grocery store. And I can use an example of, I think it was beer, that can you believe that the farmer only gets four cents on what, what a beer costs? And he had a chart for all the things. So you do wonder, uh, you know, we know that economics is a big part of sustainability. So that was really big, really important. I think the next thing on my list that caught me by surprise and this conference, by the way, was very eclectic. It had a lot of different stakeholders with food and ag, but it was weighted with a lot of farmers and ranchers from the community. And there's a lot of concerns about marketing, what's happening in the marketplace. There was a slide put up by one of the speakers that talked about when you go into a restaurant, I mean, she must have showed 30 claims about being gluten-free, GMO-free, antibiotic-free, you know, locally grown, beyond organic. And, uh, you know, the farmers have a lot of concerns about all these marketing claims. You know, not that they're against promoting it, but more are they, do they have parameters? You know, what does it all mean? I mean, can you believe, I didn't know that the term natural, which is on a lot of claims, has no definition of it. And uh, so I think all that has to be, you know, cleaned up. Uh, and uh, I think farmers are looking for really good incentives to get more involved with sustainability. And this idea of kind of sharing the story, that was a big theme here. They don't feel that their work is valued in, for the American consumer, and I tend to agree with that. Another big theme, and the whole theme of the conference is all about future casting and future proofing. So I like that. You know, I like thinking ahead. You know, so many industries think behind, they're reactive, and, and they're not just uh, anticipating the trends that are coming forward. So technology was a big part of future-proofing. I heard a lot of ideas of how AG is improving, improving that way. Transparency, they all need, they all, using data, it was fascinating to hear how they're using data to get better farm practices, even attracting labor. You know, a lot of concerns, you know, where, where's the next, you know, leaders in farming going? We had one farmer talk about it's so economically tough He's got four kids, they're in high school, and he said that he, don't, he doesn't think their children want to take over the business. And, and he's a fourth generation rancher, he's concerned about that. So, you know, I think uh, future proofing was a, a great theme. You know, lastly, I think what I heard overall, even though I'm talking about some of the struggles and challenges, what I heard was positive momentum, holistically speaking, from the sustainable community. Uh, they understand the challenges, but they, they, they look at sustainability as being it's needed. They know where the consumer is going. You know, a lot of these big brands are asking for it. They can see how it's done the right way. It can be good for them. So I think they're on board. Many of them are making progress. And I do think if uh, the average American consumer is in the same room I was in the last two days, you were there as well, Holly, they would be very, very proud of what our American farmers are doing. And I wish we could share that with everybody. So, of course, farmers work with 
food companies, and that was the other community that was at the event, um, but which was just before Thanksgiving. And um, so again, go back to you, Holly. Uh, what did you talk to Bob about um, as far as collaboration goes, right? So how can businesses be better partners with the farming community? Bob had a lot of really great insights about how businesses can work better with farmers. Uh, he talked about how there seems to be some disconnect between expectations, between what businesses think that farmers want and what farmers think that businesses want. And so he was able to give some really great insight from his talks with both sides uh, about how to move past the communication gaps. And so here's more of his advice. You know, uh, too often uh, the farmers and other parts of the supply chain are more in conflict than they are in unison. So, uh, you know, we have a great American agricultural system. I mean, I mean I'm just, I'm not trying to overhype it, but when you think about our food system, about how safe it is, how affordable it is, and high quality, we don't have that many glitches in the system. And the fact that sustainability is making progress here, uh, the fact is, more collaboration is needed. There's a lot of, also there's a lot of misinformation about what sustainability means. You know, I'm not convinced that it's just a niche thing like you know, organic and local. So I think more collaboration to all of business, uh, understanding and defining what sustainability means, uh, making it science-based and clear to the consumer, and, and also emphasizing all the positivity of American ag, the strength of the farmers and ranchers, and you know, kind of standing proud together for a really good system that now includes sustainability. And that's our 350 podcast for this week, episode 150, for those of you keeping score at home. You can go to greenbiz.com 350 and you'll find more about the organization, stories and events we mentioned in this episode. While you're over there, check out the link to our other podcast, Center Stage, the best of live interviews from GreenBiz events. You can always reach us by email. Hit us up at 350 at greenbiz.com. It's always a pleasure to hear from you. And Heather and I will be back next Friday for another weekly edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Happy Hanukkah, and thanks for listening.